Hi guys, I'm happy to announce that I've just launched my new app called Say Hello. It's a speech sound practice app designed for parents of children who are receiving speech therapy for articulation and intelligibility impairments. Think of this app as a quick and engaging way for parents to complete speech homework without the fuss of those practice packets that we photocopy and they just are never seen again. It makes practice sessions easy and accessible while also helping parents to be natural coaches and know exactly how to cue their child to make their speech sounds correctly. So we all know that children who practice their speech sounds daily are more likely to make progress. This means the more they practice with the child, the less time will be spent in speech therapy and more confidence for their child. Say Hello provides parents with quick guided practice sessions that they can do anywhere. Working in conjunction with their speech therapist, they pick the sound the child needs to work on and follow the provided prompts. Parents select the time that works best for them to receive notifications, and they can complete a practice session in three to five minutes. So we offer a free seven-day trial, and after that, it's just $4.95 a month. Check it out wherever you get your apps. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geiser and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. Today, we're covering chapters eight and nine from Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant. But before we get into the chapters, we want to talk a little bit about Adrian's experience at ASHA this year and about her new app, Say Hello. So, Adrian, what do you want to talk about first? Asha? Well, yeah, Asha was so exciting. Um, so I had a booth and I would love to say like I got to attend all the CEUs and like learn great new things, but I basically never set foot outside of the exhibit hall. <laughs> so my whole experience happened there, but it was really, really nice. It was so great to make new friends and meet people. And we met so, so, so many SLPs coming by the booth. And the response was just really amazing. That's wonderful. Anyone in yeah. particular that you met? Um, Yeah. So we had in our little row, you know, there were so many great businesses on either side of us. Um, on one side, there was this company called Play Therapy. And she is from nearby us in Southern California. And she makes like lanyards for like your ID badge and all kinds of SLP stickers and pre-printed post-it notes, which I've always thought are really cool. Mm -hmm. So she had stuff and she had a lot of people coming by. So I think probably a lot of people left with stuff from her. And then on the other side of us was this company called Secure. And I loved their idea. It was an ID card for children with disabilities. Um, I think... It was made for children with autism, but it has a lot of different applications. And it's like an ID card that they can bring to any new environment that states their allergies, their medications, their diagnoses. So, you know, if there's an altercation, mm -hmm. if something's happening with the police, maybe they're nonverbal, they can hand that over. And they were also making these wristbands that were just like had a QR code and you can just scan it and it like pops up all the information for whoever needs it. Oh, so they That's were very, cool. very nice. We loved them. Uh, and then down at the end were some ladies from Talkative Tots. They were two SLPs who had these backpacks. And I loved it. I bought one. Oh. I was like so excited about the idea. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. So it's just a little backpack. I think they're marketing towards parents of like early intervention kids, preschoolers. It just has a variety of toys in there, like a little bowl and a little spoon and a small teddy bear and blocks and balls and all kinds of stuff and then it comes with like a ring of cards where the parent can interact with their child using the toys like we would in therapy so just like early intervention therapy okay you know they say like you can work on verbs if you just have the bowl and the spoon and the teddy bear and it tells parents like you can work on eat you can work on scoop you can work on sentence building and so many great like MLU expansion. Yeah. So I really loved it. And we were like each other's cheerleaders. And we we're just walking by all the time going like, did you guys sell any new backpacks? And they're like, we sold two. And it was really thrilling. So <laughs> I believe they're based out of New York. Oh, okay. 
Um, so yeah, hopefully we'll see them maybe on the podcast one day because they are both work with early intervention and I love that they're entrepreneurs and they had this great idea and um, I'd love to hear more about the backpacks and mm-hmm. kind of how they see them integrating. For me, when I saw the backpack, I was like, you can just use this as a testing kit. You know, if you do informal assessments, if you're seeing a lot of kids day in, day out, or if you're doing a full day of assessments at a preschool, it's like the perfect thing to bring along and just kind of look at like functional play skills. And it, the backpacks are really cute. They're making them out of their home. So they have a vinyl cutter and they have like an embroidery machine. And I that is so sweet. Yeah, it was great meeting them. And then I also got the chance, I ran into from Chomper Champs, yeah. Stephanie. Yeah. Uh, and she was yeah. so sweet. I don't think she had a booth, but she had some flyers about the champ. Can I just call him the champ? You know, the little chomper. I think she calls him champ. Yeah. <laughs> and she was just so yeah. supportive and obviously a fan of the podcast because I know we've connected with her before. So it's great to see her too. Yeah. And yeah, it was a real whirlwind. I wish I'd got to see more of Boston. I ran into one of our friends from grad school. Oh, yeah. yeah. Laura, as mm-hmm. you know. But other than that, I saw literally nobody I knew. Probably being up on the West Coast, you know, nobody made the haul out to Boston, which is fine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Maybe well, next year, Seattle. Yeah, I really wish I could have been there. I'm excited to I hopefully you. go next year. Yeah. Really okay, but now we want to hear about your app. Okay, yes. The app is out. It's available. Oh. Adrian, tell me about Say Hello. Why did you decide to create an app? How does it work? Who's it for? Tell me everything. Sure. Okay. So the idea for this app came when I was feeling very frustrated about kids who have Arctic goals and linger like way too long on the caseload. I was just feeling so frustrated. Like, how can we get practice to happen? Like all of us SLPs know practice is what makes progress because speech is so metorically based that 30 minutes with us once a week is not really going to put a dent compared to how many times the child's saying the sound incorrectly day in and day out. We all have seen the studies. We all learn in grad school. We all recommend five minutes of practice a day. And we copy the packets and we send them home with the post-it. And I was just feeling so frustrated. Like, I'm doing all this work to send these things home. And I, like, never hear or see where do they go? What do they do? I don't know. Just disappear into the ether. <laughs> but I've had a couple students who were like sort of intrinsically motivated, who were like wanting to get out of speech fast. And they were the ones who did the homework and made so much progress. Yeah. You know, we can hear about it in research, but when you see it in front of you, you're like, oh my gosh. And then I also had a lot of parents asking me, what can I do at home? We really want to help. And so I thought, you know, it'd be great to make an app where the parent just kind of has it in their pocket. Everybody has a phone. And if you got a push notification on your phone telling you to practice and kind of walking you through a quick practice session, maybe we could kind of hit two birds with one stone, not only get practice happening more often, but also having it be better, more effective practice, getting more correct productions, because it will cue the parents through how to cue their child. So not only getting the practice done, but also sort of teaching parents how to cue their children the way we do. Yeah. Because what we do is not rocket science. And I really recommend the app be used with a speech therapist because we do the foundational work to get them to a place where they're stimulable. And then once they kind of have that knowledge from us, the parents can come in and just remind them and generalize the reminders. So the app is super simple. Parents just sign up, pick their speech sound. There's all of the sounds on there. And when they start a session, it just walks them through basically three sets of practice words. So if your word was sand, maybe the child's working on the S sound. Um, It's just like say sand three times. The child says sand, 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 but maybe they say than, than, than because they do a TH replacement. Mm -hmm. And then the parent chooses like, did you hear it right? Did you hear an S? Maybe you heard a TH or some other weird error and they select it. And then a prompt or a cue pops up and tells them like, ooh, tell her, you know, to pull her tongue back in a little bit, use her teeth as a gate. And press it right behind her front teeth and try again. And then, you know, did did it sound better or worse? And it's just three quick sets of that. So it's just supposed to be three to five minutes. 
we don't want it to be torturous, but I did want it to be something that could be done during bath time or, you know, right before homework or when you're pulling into the parking lot at a grocery store. Like with the phone, it just makes it so much more accessible. Yeah. Also putting the power in the parents' hands. You have the power to coach your child. And if you know how to correct them quickly and easily, maybe we can move the kids off the caseload faster because they're making more progress. Yeah, well, I can tell you that I did the beta testing on your app. I know it. And I loved that <laughs> <laughs> I loved that you could set the time of day that you would be best for the notification to pop up, but then if you wanted to, you could just sign in at any time and do yeah. a quick practice. And then I also thought that the cues for the parents were really good, like really parent-friendly, a really easy way to cue the kids. So I just think it's amazing because I remember when we were starting out as SLPs, there was all this research they would say, studies show that if you did five-minute blocks with all your students instead of one 30-minute block <laughs> for the week, it's way more right. effective. And it's like, well, who has time to be running around pulling out a kid for five minutes Every day, like pulling all your kids out into the hallway and doing five minutes of therapy. No. But that's pretty much what we're talking about with the parents here. Yeah. They're getting that 30 minutes with their speech therapist every week. But then in addition, they're getting the five minutes. And yeah, just think about how much more progress. Because, you know, the stuff that gets sent home, parents have so many. If you have more than one kid, imagine all the paperwork and like projects and stuff that's going home all the time and the homework and keeping track. I know how difficult it is. Because I give parents stuff, my private clients, and, you know, I know they lose things and they're like, oh, can you give me another copy of, you know, stuff just, yeah, it's hard to hold on to, but everybody holds on to their phone. This is true. And like, this is exactly why I did not create a game-based app. Like, this is truly an app for parents because I feel like in today's day and age, you know, we're plopping kids in front of screens so often And I just didn't want to do that. Like, I didn't want a child sitting in front of a game saying their S sound or their T or their whatever and, you know, saying it wrong 10 times in a row because nobody's there Mm -hmm. to give them any kind of feedback. Yeah. So I was like, why wouldn't we want to just increase some parent-child interaction, make it really fast so it's not like torturous, but just kind of reduce the focus on like motivating and engaging kids and sort of put the focus back on like the parent-child relationship and also empowering the parent. Yeah. Well, I love it. Yeah. Thank you. It's really exciting. So it's great for speech therapists to recommend. And I say it's for parents, but I think there's a lot of uses for it. So I think if people, we had some interest at ASHA from private practice owners who were saying like, Mm -hmm. if parents were looking for something a little extra, I think private clinics can buy group licenses and we can brand, you know, for specific clinics and push that out to all of their Artic clients. And then also school districts, there's a lot of use there for full caseloads of speech kids. So yeah, we'll see. But yeah, I mean, I recommend everybody just check it out. We have a seven day free trial. So I feel like you can get it, you can look around and it's just $4.95 a month for one child. So we're trying to keep it super accessible and just have all parents use it and benefit and hopefully we'll see kids moving out off the caseload and not languishing forever yeah well congratulations and we will put links so check our show notes for links to the say hello website and then also we'll put links to the app in both the android and apple stores right Stick around because after a quick break, we'll be back to discuss Uniquely Human. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. (laughs) Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her Lidcomb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities 
and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. All right, so let's get into Chapter 8. This one is called Wisdom from the Circle. And every year, Dr. Barry runs a two-day retreat for the parents of autistic kids that allows parents to take a break from their responsibilities and be around other people who just get it. And he says that the closing circle that they have every year is really special because it's a time when everyone reflects on the past two days and just their past year in general, and they're all really open and honest and listen to one another. And he says that in all of his time working, this retreat has taught him the most and that parents and their children have been his best teachers. The next few chapters, I would just say, if you're just listening, go and read them because there are so many little anecdotes, little stories that he tells, like, I heard from this person and this person. Yeah. You know, he made the retreat sound really fun. I was like, I kind of want to go on the retreat with Dr. Pazan. Oh, my. I was like, wait, <laughs> can I go on the retreat? Can I start a retreat? What can I do? Yeah. And, you know, he said him and his wife kind of thought it up when they were on vacation and they were enjoying like nature and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, man, the parents of the kids I work with just don't get this. They don't get to do this because they have so much responsibility, so much on their yeah, shoulders. And that's kind of where it was born from. So it's really sweet. He says it's natural for parents to take a lot of advice from professionals who seem the most knowledgeable, but parents of older children say that even though experts know a lot about autism, you are the only expert on your own child. Parents are the people who recognize subtle nuances and signals from a child that even experts can miss. There are some circumstances where this isn't the case because even parents who are striving to be the best caregivers and providers might struggle financially or in other ways that make it difficult to raise children, especially those with challenges. He says the best predictor of emotionally healthy children is having highly responsive caregivers. So it makes a really big difference when parents are able to be really present with their kids, which I feel like we always have to be a little careful saying that because it can get a little shamey. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. Okay. So he tells the story of Natalie. She's the mother of an autistic boy named Keith who had a seizure disorder and severe food allergies and gastrointestinal issues. He had like a really tense posture and often appeared like he was in pain. But after his medical issues were treated, he began speaking more and making progress in school. But Natalie, as he was about to transition to middle school, started having a lot of fear. She just felt like he had made so much progress in the last couple of years and was doing so well and trusted his teachers. And she felt like this transition would set him back significantly. So she contacted Dr. Barry and he agreed to advocate for her. But the district had a policy that a student would progress to middle school at a certain age. I mean, they all do. And then, you know, they urged the school to hold him back considering the child and his parents' wishes rather than just the policy that they had. And in the end, the district did agree and he spent one more year there and then made a successful transition to middle school. So the parents' instincts were honored and the district gained even more trust from those parents. 
Dr. Barry says almost every week he'll talk to a parent who asks him about something like a certain therapy, and when he tells them that they're probably right about how they're feeling, they go, that's what I thought, but the therapist or doctor or teacher disagreed, and he says, just trust your gut. He tells the story of a couple with two autistic teenage sons who discovered that they both really loved hiking, and it was a calming and regulating activity that they just really enjoyed and enjoyed doing as a family. So they wanted to take on this nine mile hike in a famous New Hampshire mountain pass. And the kids OT warned against it, saying that the boys weren't physically fit enough and that they might wander off. And the family just ignored the OT's advice, makes the trip, and it's really successful. And the mom said she'd always heard so much about her son's limitations that she rarely considered their potential. And following her own instincts opened up a world of possibilities for them because they had this great experience. That's really nice. Never heard of an OT. No, I mean, who would like be like, don't go outside? No, No, hiking. (laughs) I just can't see like, oh, I would advise. That's just so overstepping. I guess if the mom said, what do you think? But if a parent told me, we're going to go on a hike, we're going to go and do this nine mile hike. It's not like I'd go, I wouldn't recommend that. I don't know. I mean, I'm not an OT. I know. I don't know. But you know what? They showed her, didn't they? In the end. Yeah. Okay. So next he talks about finding community. Dr. Barry says an autism diagnosis can be really isolating, and it's important for parents to connect with others who understand and accept them. When you do connect with other parents of autistic kids, things that were painful, like a meltdown or embarrassing moment, can become a source of laughter and release. And parents might not even know they need this connection or that they're missing it until they find it. He said at his retreat, fathers especially get a lot out of hearing other fathers express emotions that they feel but rarely share. I thought we could just talk a little bit about dads real quick. Yeah. Because I don't know about in your district, it was pretty rare for me to have a dad that was an autism dad. I can think of one that was the really vocal, like, I come to the meetings and I, Mm. oh, you know what? No, not one. I can think of like five in my years. The majority of the time, it's the mom that takes on the autism diagnosis and starts to be that advocate, that fighter, and the dad kind of sits and just silently supports her, in my experience. I don't know. Well, we hear a little bit more along those lines in the chapter that I'm going to cover. Chapter 10 kind of shows that happening in different cases. But yeah, I mean, I agree. I did have some families where both parents were kind of involved or I had a lot of parents who would attend meetings together. Yeah. But I know we were in kind of like different socioeconomic brackets, our schools were. So that might be a component there. But um, I didn't have too many vocal like autism dads. Yeah. And I wish there were more because there were some sweet men in this book. (laughs) I've told you before the dad that told me the kid was on consult kind of. And he said, no, he's ready to come back to speech. And it was, it was, he was totally right. The kid had been like kind of written off as like, he's non-compliant. He won't work in speech. He won't come to the speech room. The dad was like, listen, he gets speech outside of school. He's ready for speech and he needs it. Mm. But that dad was also part of a dad's group that like went to school board meetings. Mm. He was fighting for like better nutrition at our schools. And like, (laughs) he was just really like taking on the cause. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's sweet. Yeah. Okay. And he says it is important to find the right community because some parents want to vent but not support. I think we all know those ones. And because there is such a broad spectrum in autism, one family's experience may be nothing like another family's. And I've seen this too. I've seen this in classrooms where parents are connecting of like preschool kids. Yeah. And one mom is kind of like giving advice and you want to like pull the other mom aside and be like, her kid's not like, you know, like she's got a totally different thing going on. It's not the right advice for your child. Yeah, like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Yeah, for sure. He says, find people who find the positive. One father told about a support group they joined and how all they heard was the negative, how stressed they were, what their kids couldn't do, the therapy they needed, the fights with schools. He says, don't be a Pollyanna, just find people who can help you see your child's beauty, wonder, and potential. 
And professionals can also be this way. So there are doctors who present all the things the child probably won't be able to do. We've all heard of those doctors. Teachers who only report the problems at school. And this can really impact the way a parent perceives their child and that relationship with the teacher. Yeah. A lot of things are out of the parent's control, but they can control their choices, who they spend their time with, the professionals they work with, and the advice they take. And then he has a section on having faith, which... I've got to be honest, I'm not like a very religious person, but you know, I got the point of this. And also a lot of the people I work with are very religious and they do have a lot of faith. So I've seen this at work. The mother of a really talented artist was giving a talk and someone asked her how she could send her son on public transportation from New Jersey to New York City. And she said, I have faith in God and I have faith in Justin. And Dr. Barry says he didn't always put a lot of weight in faith especially in his younger years, but over the years, he's seen how powerful it can be for families. One mom whose son had made really incredible strides in communication and learning was told by Dr. Barry, like, wow, he's done so much work. And she told him she prays every night and sees his progress as a collaborative team effort between God and the school staff. Sweet. But he says that parents of autistic kids struggle with all types of faith, spiritual faith, faith in their child, and faith in the professionals who work with them. Parents who he has worked with who cope the best are those who find ways to have faith and trust in all those areas. He says spiritual faith can decrease anxiety. Having faith in your own ability to parent and know what's best for your children is important. Parents should have hope, but also be realistic because it's harmful when professionals raise false hopes or expectations, especially people who promise cures and recovery, and then the parents lose money, time, and more faith. When I was young, right after I graduated from college, I worked with this boy. I was not an SLP. I wasn't even on track. I hadn't even realized I wanted to be an SLP. I just wanted some experience working with kids with special needs because I thought I might become a teacher. And I was working with an autistic boy. But his mom was really into a program called Sunrise, and it is, she made me read the book, and it's a program that essentially claims to cure autism. So the creators of it have a son who is like incredibly well-spoken and speaks at all their events and stuff, and it's like he was completely nonverbal, and now look at him. Now he is indistinguishable from neurotypical peers, basically. So it was, I got this I mean, things did not end well with me and this family because I had reading that book and like seeing what their expectations were, I had this very strange feeling about it. And I think it's so harmful, these programs. What was the program like? I can't remember. I haven't. I just looked it up. Okay. And when you Google it, it's like controversy. People are like outraged by a program like this. Oh. Okay, well, I'm actually glad that you brought this up because Dr. Barry was teasing this all through chapters eight and nine. He's like, chapter 11, wait till you get to chapter 11. And I think chapter 11 is about these like cure programs. He's like claims that they can cure. That was my vibe. I was like, okay, my inferencing skills are pretty good. Dr. Barry, I see what you're doing here. (laughs) I did notice he said see chapter 11 a couple times. Several times. times, And it was when he was referring to like... Charlatans. Charlatans, essentially. (laughs) Carpetbaggers. Okay. Okay. So maybe I'll talk about it. Snake oil Maybe I'll do more research on the program so that I can talk about it when we cover chapter 11 because... I mean, I'm curious. Yeah. Anyway. Parents can gain hope by paying close attention and celebrating even small progress, meeting other parents who are further along on the journey. And he said, research shows that when parents are more optimistic, children are less likely to display problematic behaviors, which is just a wild fact to throw in. (laughs) Like, how did they do this research? Cite the evidence, Dr. Barry. Cite the evidence. It's like, if you're optimistic, your child will have less problematic behavior. Like, what? What if, how do we know that it's not that the child <laughs> seems more of a the correlation child already was less, had less problematic behaviors. So the parent was more optimistic. They're more optimistic. I know. Like, your situation doesn't seem so bad because your child, yeah. Oh anyway, goodness. sorry, Dr. Barry. We love you. He says to accept and express your feelings. So having 
having a child with autism can bring about emotions that the parent hasn't had before in this way, like guilt, resentment, anxiety, and anger. He says fathers can be frustrated that they can't connect with their sons, and moms are frustrated by constant chatter about one topic or something like that. They have these feelings, and then they also have the feeling that they shouldn't feel the way they do, the guilt about feeling that way about their child. They also can have frustration toward well-meaning relatives and close friends who offer unsolicited advice or are pushy or judgmental. He says that those parents should just say, nicely, we appreciate your concern, but we're doing things the way we feel is best for our family. Yeah. And then he says to be assertive, but not aggressive. Parents are their autistic children's advocates, and they often find themselves in conflict with the people who are there to help them. So that might come in the form of making a lot of demands of school districts, teachers, and providers. But if parents push too hard, they'll damage the relationships with the people they rely on to help their children. If a parent is only contacting a provider to complain about something, how would that provider feel when they think they're doing their best, you know? And I think we've all been there. Yeah. Sometimes parents just need a channel for their anger and frustration, and it ends up being taken out on the school. I was kind of like feeling a little bit thankful that Dr. Barry kind of put this in there. I mean, he didn't harp on it too much, but it is hard to be on the other end of things where sometimes, especially if you're kind of inheriting a family or you're new to a school and you have maybe like a third grader where they've already been through a couple of grades, they're already maybe unhappy with things. And it can be so hard to meet these expectations or I don't know, I just sometimes it can feel a little defeating as a provider. Like you always want to do your best. You always want to help. But when you're kind of treated as like the enemy or you have to walk on eggshells yeah. or if there feels, I mean, I find that oftentimes a lot of the anger comes from a place of like denial in the parent and fear, you know, of just like wanting more progress, wanting things to be different. Like, can't you just fix them, fix them, fix them. So I love I love Dr. Barry's message because I feel like yeah. what he's saying is like, we don't need to fix anything. Yeah. And hopefully through collaboration, you know, and I like that he's kind of suggesting some other strategies. Instead of directing your anger towards the school, maybe you could do X, Y, or Z. Yeah, yeah. And he does, he does give suggestions for how parents can kind of channel that. But, you know, yeah. Even though I've I've said my district or my schools that I was in were not very litigious, certainly I've been in my fair share of pretty like kind of contentious IEPs, and that is really, really hard. And it's especially hard when you're giving the strengths. You're trying to tell the parents, like, look at all the progress that your child has made, or like right, you're trying right. to celebrate the good things and they only want to point out all the bad. Yeah. So Dr. Barry's kind of saying like, oh, these parents are constantly hearing what their kids can't do. I feel like a lot of those parents, you're saying, look at what they can do. And they're saying, but he can't do this. He can't. And the parents are kind of coming at you like that. Right. And that's hard. And I remember I had a preschooler, love this little girl. <sighs> Amazing. So like, God, you just wanted yeah. to take a bite of her. She was so cute and so fun. Yeah. But, you know, she was headed to kindergarten and I had been working in her class for two years and I kind of had this feeling, it was a year that I was really overwhelmed. I had a feeling that I had let her down. Like I hadn't been able to give her enough, like more one-on-one -on -one support. I don't know. I just wasn't feeling great. And when we had the IEP with her mom, it was the first time I met her mom in person because she hadn't been at the last year's IEP in person, only on the phone. She was just like, thank you guys. She is just talking so much. I just feel like at home, she's just communicating. And, like all she had was all the good. And you could just tell that she only saw all the positive stuff in her daughter. You know, like she just celebrated every little win and wasn't looking at all the other stuff. Right. And that feeling you get from those parents is just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> thank <Right>. you. <laughs> Can every parent be like you where you see it? Like yeah, you, right. I mean, right. I don't know. It's just, it's hard. So he says parents should remember, and also us, to keep the child at the forefront of everything. He even says some parents keep a picture of their child on the table at an IEP so that when things get a little out of hand, they kind of bring it back to the kid. Parents can become overwhelmed mm. with choices about treatments and approaches, and it can really take over their lives, like scheduling and the way they parent other kids. And he says to pick your battles, especially with the school, compromise is part of the process. 
And he says the same thing about the home. Parents need to pick what's important to work on at the time, depending on the needs of the family. And, you know, I've seen this. It's like we put a lot of pressure on parents. Are they getting ABA at home or, you know, whatever. And sometimes that is so much. Like some kids are getting like three hours of ABA a day. Right. And it's outrageous what these parents have on their shoulders with this. It's like a full-time job sometimes when there's so much outside pressure. So it's like, if it's not the right time for you to be working on stuff like that at home, give yourself some grace, I guess. Right. And then he says to find humor. He tells three really great stories. One about a boy at a fast food restaurant walking by a stranger's table and just grabbing some fries, being like, "Mm, delicious while he eats them. Another about a boy who was potty training at home and then at Home Depot, (laughs) tried out his new skills on a toilet display. I wrote number one or number two. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I was thinking number one, but I was like internally, oh my, how, I mean, I guess that's the right choice. I guess you're just like, we're out of here. But I thought maybe, maybe this book has found its way to the employee who had to clean that up. <laughs> maybe the employee was like, what happened to this toilet? Like, and they're so bummed at the cleanup pee. But then they read the book and they're like, oh it my God, it was, like this- <laughs> it was actually a success. It was a win. Right. <laughs> so yeah, those parents just left immediately and then were able to laugh about it later. And then a third story when Dr. Barry was working at his summer camp and they went to a rodeo and the boy he was assigned to stole a big clump of a little girl's cotton candy and was just eating it. And the dad just laughed and was like, don't worry, we'll get another one. And when Dr. Barry yeah. told the parents, they were just like, ha, huh, welcome to our life. That's just another day. So he says it's important to connect with other parents yeah. so you can share these stories and find the humor with people who experience the same sorts of things. And then he talks about respect. He tells the story of a little boy whose parents brought him to Dr. Barry's office and he completely tore the place apart and the parents were apologizing. But Dr. Barry was like, it's okay. I can just tell he's really dysregulated. And the parents told him that they had faced a lot of judgment from professionals that they brought their son to looks that really told them, why can't you control your child? And they said over the years, they felt that same feeling from teachers or therapists. And when they did, they would just flee and find someone else. But more inexperienced parents might just think that the judgment comes with the territory and they don't know that they can find caring, compassionate, non-judgmental professionals to help support them. And I liked this quote from a dad at his retreat that said, we're not asking a lot. When we deal with administrators and professionals and our relatives, all we want is to be respected as parents and for our children to be respected take that with you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then finally, he talks about channeling your energy. So he has a beautiful story of his friend who started the Miracle Project, which is a theater and arts program for children with autism, because she saw how much surrounding her autistic son with artists and actors helped draw him out. And it was featured in HBO's Autism the Musical and has grown to a national organization. He said some parents are able to direct their energy toward creating positive things for their children and others instead of channeling it into fights or, you know, fighting with the school. Yeah. And he gives a bunch of different examples that you can read of parents who either changed their whole career or just started kind of volunteering in areas that were related to helping other kids with autism or parents of autistic kids. Okay, so moving on to chapter nine. This is a fun chapter. Yeah. Um, It's called The Real Experts. I loved it. So he says Temple Grandin really changed our understanding of autism in 1986 when she published her first book and explained the experience of having autism. Before that, much of our information came from researchers or parents of autistic children, and it wasn't necessarily accurate. But now there are a lot more autistic adults sharing their experiences, and Dr. Barry has three close friends who have provided him with insights and perspectives that he really values. So this chapter is kind of giving the rundown on those three friends and what they bring to the table, because they are all very different. So Roz Blackburn, who we've heard of before, she's from the UK. Dr. Barry describes her as playful quirky, mischievous, and unique. (laughs) She says she has two sides, her true self or autistic self, and then the self she presents to the world that's restrained, polite, and controlled. So she's describing masking, I guess. Yeah. Her parents understood her, but also taught her the social skills she would need. They never took autism as an excuse for inappropriate behavior. And Roz says that parents should have high expectations for their children, but equally high levels of support. 
She describes that she lives with an almost constant feeling of anxiety and fear, especially in social situations. And people are so unpredictable that she just says flat out, I don't do social. She says verbal communication is her greatest ability and also her greatest disability. She's so articulate. People assume things about her like that she's comfortable in social situations when really she's terrified of them. But she has found ways to meet her needs. She has carers who accompany her on trips and help her navigate social situations. And she loves to trampoline. So that's just a way for her to regulate herself. So he tells a story of... This is crazy, this story. Meeting Sigourney (laughs) Weaver. (laughs) I was like, whoa, this chapter took a turn. (laughs) So Sigourney Weaver was doing a movie where she was portraying a an autistic woman. Have you ever seen it? No. Seen I've never even heard no, of me it. Either. I was like, what? Snow Cake. Snow Cake. Okay. The movie yeah. is Snow Cake. She spent time with Roz in order to do research for her character. Right. And at one point, they were like in New England in the winter. And Roz is just like, I really need to trampoline right now. And Dr. Barry's like, we can't find a train. What are we doing? And somebody's just like, oh, I have a huge trampoline in my backyard. We just cleared all the snow off of it. And so Sigourney Weaver was just like, all right, let's go. And then her and Roz go and just jump on the trampoline in the middle of winter. <laughs> snow. I love that. He also describes her like advocating for herself in a restaurant, just, you know, being sat in the middle of a bunch of people and being like, nope, I can't sit here. I'll have, you know, sound coming in from all different directions. It's really distracting and dysregulating for her. So she knows her needs and limitations and is able to ask for what she wants. But she's also unaware of things that are important to other people. He tells the story of her just describing attending some movie premiere with Sigourney Weaver when she came to England and then not even remembering the movie, but it was Avatar. (laughs) And he was like, well, how was it? And she was like, oh, it was really noisy and crowded. (laughs) Some movie. She gets this like once in a lifetime opportunity for the biggest movie ever released. Hilarious. (laughs) To attend and walk the red carpet. But that's great. Um, It's also hard for her to be dishonest. She says even saying it's very nice to meet you when she'd rather be trampolining is hard for her because it's not the truth. She carries around boxes of toys and fidgets. And she also, I do do not like this, brings mirrors on airplanes to reflect sunlight into passengers' eyes just to annoy them. I was like, I don't. No, no, no. Is that mischievous or is that just like rude? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's rude. That's rude. You're already miserable. You're on an airplane. You're like, oh, just get me there. And then you've got somebody shining light into your eyes just for the fun of it to watch how annoyed you get. (laughs) Like, I'm all for embrace neurodiversity. Listen. Yeah, yeah. But we all have to do things you know, as long as you're not harming other people, right? We all have to restrain ourselves from just doing whatever we want to do if it interferes with other people's experience. I mean, I know. But Dr. Barry's just like, oh, ho, ho, this is hilarious. <laughs> what a trickster. <laughs> it did make me think, like, has that ever happened to me on a plane? Do I have a memory of some light coming in my eye? Was it Roz? <laughs> well, we've, okay. I think that the reason it bugs me is we've all been on the plane before where one person won't put down their window and the sun is hitting you and you're like why is that person leaving the window open like that is blasting me I know it's not blasting them but it's blasting me so that's why it hits home you know you're like you can totally picture how annoying it would be totally anyway Roz rethink that one (laughs) (laughs) she has shown Dr. Barry how challenging life can be for autistic people moving through a world with constant fear and anxiety and he thinks of her when he looks into the eyes of a three-year-old child and realizes that they're not being non-compliant they're just terrified and I really liked this she says to help someone when they're panicked or anxious Don't put your hands all over me and don't talk a lot to me. Support me in silence. Support me with your presence. And this, of course, reminds me of Beyond Behaviors when she talks about low and slow. You know, when somebody is either on the red or the blue pathway, it doesn't help to be like coming at them, (laughs) talking a lot because they're not taking it in anyway. So just be that calming presence. Yes. So now we'll move on to Michael John Carley. He, at age 36, when his son was diagnosed with autism, the therapist turns to him and just goes, now let's talk about you. I was thinking about this today, like the audacity kind of. 
<laughs> well, I've told, I know when we read Loving Push, I talked about in grad school, we had a, a gentleman come into our diagnostic clinic. His son had autism mm. and he was now having mm. problems at work. And it was pretty clear to us that he was autistic, but we were just sure. speech therapy grad students. But what he was describing was basically that he had undiagnosed autism and it probably kind of similar to this guy. It would help him if he had that right. knowledge and got a formal diagnosis and understood what that meant so that he could advocate for himself in the workplace because that's where he was having a lot of issues. Mm. So at first, Michael was shocked, but then his Asperger's diagnosis really helped him make sense of his life. He was really accomplished, a diplomat, playwright, baseball pitcher, guitarist, host of a local NPR station. But in high school, teachers thought he had a psychological disorder because his behavior was so strange. He talks mm. at length about his interests, loses friendships when he says things that are offensive, stands really close when he's talking to people. But after his diagnosis, he really embraced it. He started an organization called GRASP that helps adults and teens on the autism spectrum. He wrote a book called Asperger's from the Inside Out, and he really advocated against removing the Asperger's diagnosis from the DSM-5, which we know was unsuccessful on his part, unfortunately. Yeah, sadly. And yeah. he told Dr. Barry that being a diplomat was actually easy for him because there were such rigid rules that he was able to master with how you interact. So it was a lot easier to conduct himself than less structured social situations. And because he had so much professional success, it was easy for him to cope with his son's diagnosis more so than it would be for someone else because he had so much evidence that an autistic person has so much potential and can achieve so much. He's a really involved father and wants to be a good role model for his son with Asperger's and feels it's really important to expose young autistic children to successful adults with autism to show them what's possible. He says that teens and young adults with autism are more products of life experiences than of their autism, and he really worries about mental health issues that result from those social misunderstandings and being misinterpreted by others that occur in your teens and young adulthood. Yeah. He's a spokesman. He shares with others that many of the painful experiences they've had are not rooted in their character, but in their wiring and the fact that other people's reactions have not been helpful. He spoke on Capitol Hill in 2012, saying that there's no medical basis for treating autism like a disease to be cured. And he said, as we all grow, whether we're on the spectrum or not, we need to hear about what we can do, not what we can't do. Love him. And then our final autistic adult we are hearing from is Stephen Shore. He was born in the 1960s. So when he started showing signs of autism at 18 months, it took a year for his parents to even figure out where to get him evaluated. They got the autism diagnosis and doctors said he was too severe for outpatient rehab that he really needed to be institutionalized. But the parents luckily ignored this advice and began an intensive at-home early intervention program on their own. And at first they tried to get him to imitate them, but that didn't work. So they just started imitating him and that really drew his attention and was what eventually helped him to grow. He didn't speak until he was four years old. But then he went on to become incredibly successful. He has a doctorate in special education. He's an author, a government advisor on autism. He teaches at Adelphi University. He's spoken at the UN. He's traveled the world consulting and giving speeches on autism. And he teaches piano to autistic children, but not neurotypical children because it's hard for him to understand how they think and learn. I noticed that. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that one either. A little bit of the inverse. Huh? <laughs> Dr. Barry says he has a really incredible sense of humor about living with autism. The story, just go ahead and read this chapter, but the story of how he met his wife was incredible. She kissed him one day on the beach. As it's happening, he remembered a social story he had read about how if a woman kisses you, hugs you, and holds you all the time, it probably means they want to be your girlfriend. And he knew his response could be yes, no, or further analysis indicated. And I just died reading this. I was laughing so hard. It was so sweet. Me too. <laughs> further analysis indicated. I was like, what were social stories like? I mean, this was probably the 80s, right? Or was it, did he say 1990? I forget. Early, they got married in 1990, I think he said. Yeah, so, so this was a 1980s social story yeah. that he was remembering, probably. Cool. Anyway, 
Contrary to many people with autism, says Dr. Barry, Stephen is very calm and relaxed, even-tempered and thoughtful. But his dysregulation comes in other forms like being really, really uncomfortable in a suit and tie, having to wear baseball caps to keep glare out of his eyes. He can remember haircuts as a kid just being terrible. And he really struggles to remember people's faces, uh, even students he's worked with for a long time at the college. But he knows exactly what it takes to calm his nerves. Like he loves traveling because he loves the feeling of being on an airplane when it takes off, which I also very much love. Just the take. I don't love being on an airplane, but I love that feeling where your body's like (laughs) getting sucked into the seat. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I know. You're not. You don't like flying. His core message is the importance of disclosure. He says informing a child of his or her own diagnosis at the appropriate time and in a thoughtful way is really important. He also, Dr. Barry says, has an incredible sense of his own story and how important it is to share it with others. And that's it. This was just a chapter kind of, you know, I think throughout this, we've heard Dr. Barry loves to hear from autistic adults. You know, we know that they are our best teachers when it comes to working with kids with autism. So this was just sharing those stories. Yeah, I mean, I really loved hearing from Dr. Barry. He has so much experience that it's really nice to hear all these like anecdotes and personal stories. And I like that he talks about a lot of like, quote, famous autistic people he knows, like talking about Temple Grandin and stuff like that. But at the same time, in the chapter before, he shared so many experiences from just like regular families that I think it's really relatable. And I just love Dr. Barry. I feel like his focus on the positive is so welcome. And I love that he has such a positive message for everyone. So yeah, yay, Dr. Barry. Yeah. And I think these two chapters at first when I was reading chapter eight, I was like, okay, this is really for parents. Right. But then I was like, as SLPs, we can read that chapter and take in the advice that we give to parents, you know? 100%. We often have parents who have just received an autism diagnosis when we're working in early intervention or when we're working with preschoolers. And some of the information in that chapter is just so important to pass on to parents. Yeah. If I had a new parent who just had a diagnosis, I would probably just recommend reading this whole book. But, you know, sharing some of that advice from him, you could just go into the way you view your child and the way you view the providers and everything, everything about autism with a different perspective, if you have that information. Well, that's what I was going to say, too, is that it goes a long way for perspectives, right? Like, it's sometimes so easy for us to kind of get in the rut of like our side of things and what we're doing and we're trying to help. And it I felt like reading that chapter, specifically chapter eight, yeah, was just like that kind of like reminder that we all need that this is a path that they have to walk to and it's really hard. And sometimes they're bringing a lot of their own baggage to the situation and it can just be helpful to like take a deep breath, try your best. It's all you can do anyway, but yeah. Well, we hope you got a lot from those chapters. Next week, we'll be discussing chapter 10 of Uniquely Human. We'll see you then. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP Book Club.